What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim, and welcome to another episode of the HR Impact Show. In today's episode, we're going to learn why data-driven leadership and recruiting doesn't mean we dial up the smile and dial cadence up to 50 million. So that sounds really strange, but it'll make sense in a little bit. The person that's going to take us through that learning is joining us today. He is a chief storyteller at a fistful of talent blog. He's on board of directors for a number of TA tech and TA adjacent orgs. And for those that are new, TA is talent acquisition. So just so you're aware of that. And he's been a longtime president of HR Technical Resources. Tim Sackett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, like I think I got involved with HR and talent acquisition. I always tell people from birth, my mother started a staffing company when I was in elementary school. And so I would sit and listen to her make recruiting calls with basically no volume on the TV. So people always like, like figure out like, how did you get into recruiting? And I tell them I was born into it. Most people fell into it some way. I was born into it. That's a nice bit of background. Aside from being born into talent acquisition, what are the things that you feel are important for them to understand about your background that's going to be relevant to the conversation that we're about to have? You've worked on both sides of the fence. So I've worked in the corporate side of talent acquisition and HR, and I've also run a staffing firm. And I also work as an analyst and advisor to a lot of the recruiting tech companies that are out there, have written in this space for about 10 years. So I really like to, I always take the side of like corporate talent acquisition leader in terms of the impact that's going to happen. There's so many there that struggle where their executives are coming to them and, hey, we're failing in TA. How can we get help? How can we get better? And so often they feel like they're being taken advantage of by vendor community, by technology community. And right now the landscape is so overwhelming. It's just the confusion level is very high. That's really good context. And this should be an interesting conversation regardless of that background. But I come from the agency side of talent acquisition. There's some interesting contrast in terms of your perspective and, and mine. I think one of the things that I'm really curious about, and this is why I opened the show with the comment about smiling and dialing. Yeah. And in the agency world, when we're talking about data-driven leadership, it's basically turning everything into just pure metrics about, hey, if you do this amount of work, you're going to get these kind of results. And I've always bristled against that sort of thinking like, hey, we can't get enough submittals. So what do we need to do? Oh, call harder, or email harder is the solution. <laughs> and I think that's just one of the dumbest solutions that are out there. So really looking forward to digging into what you have to say. When you I, think about yeah. building a high performance team, and the game-changing realization that you had that set you on the path of being able to do that. Tell us about what that is. Jim, I grew up in the agency world, so I understand exactly what you're saying and what you're coming from. And I think there's a part of us that we hate the numbers game, and at the same time, 
the numbers don't lie. And so there's this constant kind of push and pull between like science and art when it comes to recruiting. For me, the big learning was, especially when I went on the corporate side of TA, I was shocked first at the lack of data that was there, the lack of how we just didn't really, in the, every environment I've went to, and I've been in healthcare, casual dining, retail, like nobody was really measuring recruiters and recruiting in a way that I saw on the agency side. At the same time, our executives would come to us and they would say, okay, hey, we have to open 100 restaurants next year. And that means we're going to have to hire 25% more people than we did the year before. And the comments were always from our the leadership. And then when I got in leadership, I that was the epiphany I had to change. It was always, we'll just work harder. And I'm like, that's not a strategy. You could work 24-7. And so it was this, it's really trying to the understanding of you better build in and understand what your capacity is as a function so that when those executives come to you and they say, hey, we need to increase a hiring plan by 25%, 50% in the next quarter, that you can actually have a really great business conversation. And one of those conversations might be, yeah, that's not going to happen. And they would just go back and say, no, it has to happen. Okay, if it has to happen, then I have all these things that I'm going to need in terms of technology, people, resources, whatever that might be. And to even today, I'm shocked after being in you know this industry for 25 years, I can still have this conversation with a TA leader, a CHRO on a daily basis at the enterprise level. And I would say 99% of them have no idea what their recruiting capacity is. Ooh, there is a lot there that we can dig into. So let's peel back those layers a little bit. So you mentioned that one of the things that you noticed when you were in the corporate side was that things weren't being measured to the extent that they needed to be measured that are relevant to the goal that you're trying to get to. And you also mentioned that oftentimes it would mean that people need to be ready to be told no or that it's not realistic. Yeah, There's a long way from goals and being able to be told no. So walk us through the process yeah. that you had to take a executive through so that they're in the space to hear this is what the reality is. First, I took some of the stuff over from the agency world, which is I need to understand what my funnel is by recruiter, by team, by function. And so when somebody comes to you and says, hey, we're going to have to need more people, then you have, okay, hey, if we need to hire 10 more people, 100 more people, 1,000 more people, whatever that might be, exactly the work that has to be put in. One is what your recruiter capacity is. And so while we bristle at the fact of, hey, just make more calls to get more submittals, it might be, it's way more complicated than that, right? Because it's not just about connecting with more people and it is about connecting with more people, but you might do that through recruitment marketing, through branding, there's all kinds of ways, right? To get more people in the top of the funnel. And then you have to know again, do I need 25 of a candidate to get down to the interview process, to get down to the offer and, and how many hires I need? Once I have all of that data, I can reverse engineer it to say, okay, our capacity at any certain time is X. And maybe I'm actually only at 90% capacity. Maybe I'm pushing people really hard. We have some competition stuff going on. They're working some overtime. We're over capacity in terms of what we normally would run. But when somebody comes to you then and says, oh, by the way, we're going to have to increase the hiring by whatever, I now can have a real conversation around, okay, I'm already at 90% capacity. I can give you an extra 100 hires next quarter. 
but I can't give you the 250 that you need to get the other 150. I'm going to have to engage another, maybe a contract recruiter, maybe another hire, maybe more recruitment marketing, maybe adding some technology that will make us more efficient. All of those pieces play into having that real conversation that right now without that, you're just guessing. And what I see, we see this constant churn and turnover of talent acquisition leaders in our industry. And it's all because to me, it's their strategy is we're just going to take broken systems and processes and we're just going to whip them in. We're going to work harder. And after about 12 to 18 months, the executive team goes, it's, we're getting the same outcome. We're still failing. And you're just, and again, they truly feel like I've given everything I could to try to make this work. And I'm like, all you've done is work hard. You haven't really, you know, re-engineered what's going on. And, and the part of that, you know, the, I think what I saw too on the corporate side as I took over talent acquisition teams was we were administering recruiting. We weren't actually recruiting. We were posting jobs. We were waiting for people to apply. And if they didn't apply, we just said, that's just how it works. And I'm like, actually, no, that's not how it works. We have an opening. <laughs> There's people out there. We need to go get them. You said a lot there that I think is pertinent. I'm going to tie a couple pieces together. When you are walking through the things that could be done to solve the particular problem that you're facing with, you listed off a whole bunch of stuff. And then you mentioned technology last. So the way that I took what you said is your laundry list of things were people and process focused, and then you introduced technology. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but share with us a little bit of why you sequenced that answer that particular yeah. way when it comes to examining your funnel and really digging deep into what's going on. I tell people all the time, like, if you suck at recruiting and you buy really great recruiting technology, it's going to allow you to suck much faster because that's really, it's the tech, the great technology stack in recruiting allows you to be efficient and faster. But if you put bad processes and bad people into that technology, it's you're, all you're going to be is bad faster. And so you really have to nail down what is that hiring process look like? And so often, right, we're putting in all these roadblocks and hoops for candidates to jump through that are really meaningless. It's, we're not asking, we're not trying to go out and find the best talent. We're trying to find the talent that will survive our process. And again, just really bad conceptual filters that we've built over time. And then, and again, part of that is then is, is like, hey, if we have the right process that has the right touch points, then I'm going to get all the measures I need to know what actually is happening by a recruiter. Again, so often you would talk to a recruiter and without measure, they just seem like they're so busy. Oh my gosh, every day. I see this with recruiters that get addicted to LinkedIn. They'll, be, they'll spend 35 hours a week on LinkedIn filling their day or filling their week. And then you go, what's going on? And they're just like, I spent all week sourcing. That's a different than really recruiting. So there, there's just some things that we have to go out and really be able to measure. So for me, it's process and people. And I, every single time I've gone in and re-engineered a talent acquisition team, I'll tell the leader, the CHRO, the chief talent officer, whoever's going to be my point person, you're probably going to lose 50% of your team in the next 90 days because you have people here that are getting paid really well to be a recruiter but they're really an admin. They're administering recruiting. They're not recruiting. And when, I, and when we turn this machine on and we start making them recruit, they're going to hate it and they're going to jump. But, but that's okay. I saw a really big enterprise company I was working with that they said, the guy, they, so the guy comes back 90 days later. He's like, I lost 30% of my team, of which was 150 people. Lost 30% of their team and they were actually producing more with 30% less people. 
What you just said doesn't surprise me a whole lot because there were a lot of conversations that I had from the agency side with internal recruiting uh, within the clients that I would bring on. And oftentimes I would always ask, why are we having the conversation? What's happening within your environment that requires you or at least compels you to go out for an external resource to find these roles? Walk me through your process. And oftentimes one of the questions that I would ask is, okay, when a position comes out, you talk to your hiring manager internally, you find out what the role is required. What's the first thing that you do after that? And say, like, I'll post a job. And I'm like, why wouldn't you look in your own database to see if there's any candidates <laughs> that you passed over that could be redeployed or could be a fit that didn't make it the first round or time around? And you'd be surprised how often I would get stunned silence. And my comment would be, I'm more than happy to help you on your search. And I'll definitely take the fee, whether it's contract or the direct hire fee. But I think there are opportunities for you to solve this internally by cultivating your own database and moving forward. One of the things that you mentioned in pre-show was that you're a big advocate for data-driven leadership, but not as a hammer. Tell me what that means. It's one of the things when you start to open up the funnel or measure the funnel of your recruiters, their initial reaction is going to be, this feels like micromanagement. It feels like, why are you measuring every single thing I'm doing? And because they, again, they think of a traditional leadership is you're going to use this against me. The reality is, especially like if I'm working with new recruiters or senior recruiters, I need to know what's going on. If they're sending out screen candidates to hiring manager on a weekly basis. And let's say they're sending 15 or 20 and none of those are getting interviews. Well, either they are sending low quality or there's this misalignment with a hiring manager on what's being sent. Or I have a hiring manager who flat out is wasting time and resources on my recruiters. Both of those things, I have to be able to go and help them, right? Develop them, make them better. So I'm not going to go and yell at them, right, to get more. I'm going to go and use it as a development opportunity to see what's really going on. And I think that's so often, though, when we, especially those of us who grew up in the agency world, those measures were used as a hammer. But I think even in my world now, in the agency world, and when I was in the corporate TA side, I espoused that, hey, we're going to measure this stuff, but this is all about development, how to make us better, make us more efficient. Plus, we under, we have to know the capacity of what we can do. And we're going to use this for development because in what we would usually see is, and this is a, a great example. If I'm on the corporate side of TA and I have great relationships with my hiring managers who I can have one-to-one, every single person I send them, they should actually interview. In fact, they shouldn't even ask. I shouldn't even ask them if they want to interview. I should just actually set up the interview. I should be batting 1000 every single time I send them a candidate. If I have trust and great relationship with that hiring manager. And yet, the actual percentages are coming out around 30%, right? You send five, they come back and want to interview one or two. You send 10, they want to interview three or four. And to me, that's a failure at a colossal level in corporate talent acquisition. The amount of resource failure that we're doing, where we're acting like somehow we're just, the machine is going to continue to come, right? Oh, and then we'll hear hiring managers and we'll hear the TA team, the frustration of, I sent this TA person or this hiring manager 10 candidates last week, he rejected them all and they want to see more. And we've given them this perception that there's always more instead of saying, nope, I actually understand the position. I understand our culture. I understand what you're looking for. And if I send you somebody, that means I've made the determination as a professional recruiting associate that you should interview this person. Now, 
I, so I tell TA teams, corporate TA teams, I'll give you 90%. I'll give one out of 10 where maybe the hiring manager goes, you know what? I used to actually work with that person and, and I understand they're a bad performer. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Even though the resume looks good and all the background, they actually have a personal relationship they know. I'll give you one out of 10. But if you're not batting 900, there's a problem in your organization. And yet most organizations are batting 300, 400. And if in baseball, you'd be a Hall of Famer. In recruiting, you're a failure. Even at that three or four out of 10, there are a lot of recruitment firms that strive for that and do just fine. And what was interesting is that when I was actually building my division, so I was in IT staffing and I built that from the ground up. So zero clients, zero revenue yeah. to an $8 million business. I, I switched the conversation around instead of the middle to fill ratio. I talked about, I started it at the beginning of the process. And when I was talking to hiring managers, I would ask them the question, the person that's going to occupy this seat, what are the things that they're going to need to deliver within the first 12 months for them to be a raging success? So I've shifted the conversation from the bullet points that you see in the position descriptions to what's this person going to actually need to deliver for you to be wowed by their production? And that opened up the amount of candidates that they would look at, because if you have a two or three year person that's done this thing, that's a high potential candidate. Or on the flip side, if you have somebody that is a 20-year veteran that this is what they focus on, this is what they've done over and over again, now you have somebody that could probably come in and deliver this in a much shorter amount of time. So it opened up the potential for that problem that hiring manager is having to get solved in a lot of different or creative ways. Because oftentimes, hiring managers won't give you the feedback at all. They'll just reject yeah. those candidates and ask for more, like you said, and the recruiter is sitting there wondering, what, what am I looking for? If you're not gonna give me any feedback, if you're gonna be slow to respond, you haven't framed out your outcomes, why are we talking? That's on the corporate side of, of TA in the health system. I, the IT was our, one of our biggest pain points, right? And one of the things I was able to test, because I, I knew the CIO created a relationship and I go, let me test some things. One was, we had about an 80% rejection rate on candidates that we would send over to these hiring managers. And so I said, we're going to take a couple of your desperate managers and we're just going to set up interviews and then they're just going to show up and they're going to interview these candidates. They won't have the, the, the resumes beforehand. They will have the resumes right before they go into the interview. So all of a sudden now we went from 80% rejection to 100%. You're going to, you're going to interview everybody. And immediately these hiring managers started to hire faster, better. We're happy with the service. And it's just because we took away that crutch of them looking for a unicorn, looking for the perfect candidate. And then they, when they started to talk with people and interview them, they started to see the possibilities of each candidate, not the negatives of each candidate. And I yep. think that's one of the failures in corporate in the corporate world is we've allowed these hiring managers to believe that there's unicorns out there. There's not. There's just a lot of great candidates, some of which have what you need, some might maybe not, but the vast majority are going to have pieces of what you need. And you're going to make a decision, can I work with this person or not? This fits into your part-time job as a chat GPT prompt engineer, but your prompt <laughs> about, about stop looking for unicorns is absolutely dead on because the first thing that I would do when I'm looking at a position description for a role that I'm recruiting on you, you would see five to seven different roles that are contained within one description. And I was like, this person doesn't exist at the dollar amount that you want. And yeah. people have to get comfortable in having those conversations. So I want to start tying this together a little bit. So you talked about 
data-driven leadership, but not as a hammer, as you're working to build that philosophy out, what's the pitfall that the folks that are listening should be watching out for? One of the biggest issues we face, especially when we start, you start to compare. And then we, there's this mindset of, Tim is our number one recruiter and he's putting this much out. His funnel looks like this. Everybody's funnel should look like this. And I try to tell people, don't ever compare your funnel or don't ever build your capacity to your best performers. You build it to your mid performers. You build it to those B players. And because at that point, that's the vast majority of your team is going to be B players. They're not going to be A players. We, we love to think we all have all these A players. But when you take a look, let's say you have a team of 10 you're going to have a couple on the top side that are just, you're killing it and they're great. You're going to have a bunch in the middle. You have a couple on the low end, build everything around your capacity around the middle, not around the outliers. And I think that's the one issue we face is that as most leaders try to build to the outliers, and then they're going to rate yourself that you have more capacity than you really can perform. You're going to make everybody in the middle feel stressed and overwhelmed because they can't ever reach what your outliers are doing. And I think that's probably the biggest issue is stop trying to build to your A players, build to your B players, and know that's going to be enough. If I was putting what you just said into a bumper sticker, it would say build from the middle out yeah. instead of from the top down. So you can put that on a t-shirt. I, I expect a royalty check more than the writers in Hollywood, though. We talked about a lot of stuff in this conversation. And you walked us through the scenario that you uncovered or you encountered that helped you do this. Now, if you're taking what we talked about and building a framework around it for others that want to do the same thing, give us some steps that they need to think about when they're looking at solving this particular problem. I think one of the things I would first take a look at is what's the data that you actually have that you know is clean data or that is non-subjective data. So often we get in, like we start to build a classic one in the talent acquisition HR space is this like days to fill metric, which again has no correlation to you hiring better. It's just, it's a measure that we could actually make up and that we felt comfortable that was a really good measure. And so all of a sudden we said, oh my gosh, we're faster, we must be better. Being faster isn't better. Days to fill is just a health metric. It's not a performance metric. And I think really getting data that actually correlates to good performance, even if that data is ugly and doesn't look good on, on your function to begin with, because you at least that gives you the benchmark and groundwork to start to improve. So often we just try to come up with data that makes us look good, even when we're failing. And we actually, it breaks the trust with our senior leadership, our executives, because they know you're failing and yet you keep presenting data that shows that you're not failing. There has to be some self-insight there. So get data that actually speaks to, to performance, measure that data, be maniacal about tracking and gathering that data. And th again, and then don't use the data to beat up your people. Use the data to actually develop and get better. And if your people know that you're gonna do that and you consistently do that over time, the trust will increase, the performance will increase and things are gonna get better. Last thing before I close down, where can people find you? TimSackett.com, Tim Sackett on the Googles. It's me and a truck driver chaplain out of Minneapolis. I'm not the truck driver chaplain. It would be amazing if I was both guys, like TA the week and truck driver chaplain on the weekends, but I'm just the one guy. When I think about this conversation that we just had, there's a couple of big things that come out. Your point about building from the middle out, I think is an exceptional point when we're thinking about how do you build a high performing team? Because yeah. what often happens is when you build a model 
and tie it to the exception, a lot of people are going to automatically check out because they're going to realize in their real yeah. or imagined it's not attainable. So that was one of the biggest things that came out of this conversation. And then when I'm looking at the overall discussion, what I really like about what you said is start with the people and process elements of the problem that you're trying to solve for first, uncover all the implications and consequences after that. That's going to create the space for you to establish a realistic goal. Then you're going to need to communicate that across the enterprise and then execute. If you follow that framework, that's a recipe for success. So that's what I gathered from this entire discussion. For those of you who have tuned in for the conversation, hope you enjoyed it. We will have more great guests sharing their insights that help them build a high performance organization. If you liked it, tell a friend, leave a review too. Thanks for joining us and tune in next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.